Welcome to episode 41 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the countdown where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again for Planet Hulk is the gentleman we heard last week, Mr. Stephen Lacey. Welcome back, Stephen. Welcome back. It was only a week ago, but it feels like much, much longer. Uh, probably because the recordings were not one week apart. <laughs> Damn real life getting in the way of our digital presence. Oh, yeah. And this week we are talking about Planet Hulk. So this is the story arc that ran from Incredible Hulk Volume 2, issues 92 to 105. Written by Greg Pak, penciled by Carla Pagulian, inked by Jeffrey Hewitt, colored by Chris Sotomayor, edited by Randy Gentile, or lettered by Randy Gentile, edited by assistant editor Nate Cosby, editor Mark Panicia, and editor-in-chief Joe Casada, with cover dates from April 2006 to June 2007, and release dates from February 8, 2006 to April 4, 2007. So we'll drop in a quick promo for one of Stephen's shows here, and then we'll, we'll be back to discuss the actual story. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? And we're back. So yeah, as we said, we are talking about Planet Hulk. So this is the story that led into the World War Hulk story that was discussed in episode 55. So you've already heard some spoilers for this plot. So as we probably mentioned there, the whole thing was born out of a one-sentence pitch from Joe Casada to Greg Pak, basically saying, we want Hulk off the table for Civil War because he doesn't really fit that story. Let's make him a gladiator in space. And he left the rest up to Greg Pak to figure out. And I think Pak did a pretty good job with that one-sentence pitch. So quick plot synopsis. This story arc is actually, you know, even though the whole thing has Planet Hulk banner across the top of every issue, the individual issues do have subplots within. The first four issues are the story arc called Exile, in which Hulk finds himself on the planet Sakaar for the first time, having been drafted after going through the wormhole that he was launched into by the Illuminati accidentally. They were trying to launch him permanently away from Earth, but weren't aiming for that wormhole. And now in his weakened state, he's being forced to fight in a gladiatorial arena, although he's constantly building up power. And Exile ends with his release from the gladiatorial arena, after beating down the Silver Surfer. That's followed by the four-part Anarchy arc, where he and his warbound, i.e. the gladiators who he was fighting next to, escape the arena and move out into the wilds of Sakaar to start mounting a revolt and, at the very least, get out from under the oppressive rule of this empire that's willing to take the most dangerous alien invaders and use them as biological weapons against these guys. The next four issues are about Allegiance, where... 
They're drawing the lines in the sand, and the Emperor is refusing to allow them to just disappear and live their lives in peace, and the war is building. In the process, the Emperor's right-hand woman, Kyra the Old Strong, learns what kind of leader he really is, and changes allegiances to the Hulk's side of the street. And then the last two issues, titled Armageddon, are where Hulk and his now pregnant wife, Kyra are ready to set up a peaceful rule when the spacecraft that brought Hulk to this world explodes and devastates the planet, setting the stage for World War Hulk. Obviously, there's a lot more fine details than that in 14 issues, but I think that hits the broad strokes. Did I miss anything important there, Stephen? Trying to sum up the plot of Planet Hulk, you either have to do it in a couple of senses you've done, or you've got to basically go through the issues in detail, because for me, Planet Hulk is... It's a good story, but without the characters and the depth given to the Warbound, the way they come together and the things you find out about them as you go through the story is nothing. I, I honestly feel it's the Warbound who make this story. As an example, when I was sitting watching Thor 2, The Dark World, when you have the rock alien creature thing threatening Fandral's world at the start of the movie, I didn't go, as many people would have done, oh, that's good, that's one of the stone aliens from... Uh, Thor's debut story that's a nice little reference there I went Korg because to me that was Korg oh yeah I I definitely would agree it's Greg Pak's depth of character and setting up this ensemble is what set this story and largely his run apart one of the things he consciously chose to do is say well you know Hulk has always said he wants to be left alone what happens if he has a family and supporting cast that won't leave his side mm. um, at the time I was buying this because I bought these in singles and I accidentally bought these in singles, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. At the time I was buying this, I was aware that there was a storyline in the 70s where the Hulk had been banished from Earth uh, to something called The Crossroads by Doctor Strange. And I, I <laughs> and this nearly 10 years later, I still don't know very much about this storyline. But when I was reading this story, all I could think was, oh, this is a return to that style of Hulk story, rather than, as two years previously, we'd been still in the, the depths of Bruce Jones's Hulk on the Run uh, for a murder he didn't commit style story that just went on I think far longer than anyone really wanted mm -hmm. so it seems to be a very conscious choice to go we need to make the Hulk comic as different from what people have been reading for the past few years as possible yeah and it did I think work very well I would say that the Bruce Jones run got off to a good start but was harmed by its length yeah my memory of seeing that on the stands was basically the phenomenal Kari Andrews covers um, one of which in particular involved the Hulk on a box of cereal absolutely nothing to do with the content inside and arguably one of the biggest mismatches of cover style and comic content ever seen but they were phenomenal <laughs> they were yeah those are ones i originally read on the dvd rom along with a lot of this if you want might as well get into the personal stories as we we said we'd get into i originally bought this uh, because i figured those git corp dvd roms that were being published were the best deals in comics at the time and I've got enough of a collector instinct that once I started buying the DVD-ROMs, at the time I felt compelled to pick up the title so that I would have a complete run. So I've got issues 92 through 99 on those GitCorp DVD-ROMs, and I picked it up with issue 100 to pick up where the DVD-ROM left off to continue on a monthly basis. And at the time, this was in the depths of Civil War, so I read 99 through 100 in a sitting because 100 had a story that crossed over with Civil War in one of the backups. It was a anniversary celebration issue and crossover is barely barely a description for it. It, it it's very much a uh and that's done <laughs> yeah it's i'm on the marvel press release list they have a press release saying oh by the way there's a, a civil war crossover story in issue 100 it just didn't fit on the trade dress 
So I picked it up, got it home. It's like, okay, so Amadeus Cho said, oh, by the way, when you've been dealing with your civil war, you Hulk missed his destination planet. And that's about it. <laughs> this is a bit of a reference to a, an upcoming episode that I'll be on, but it's a bit like the set calling Annihilation a Civil War crossover because there's a moment where Star-Lord's um, looking at Earth and going, they're so busy fighting themselves, they've no idea what's coming. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty tenuous, so. Although that has just occurred to me. That means that this period of time in Marvel Comics, I mean, regardless of your thoughts on Civil War, and uh, it's going to make for a very interesting episode of this show, but when you think that you had Civil War absorbing sales, but you also had Planet Hulk and Annihilation going on, basically says that the, the Marvel Cosmic Universe was frankly the best it's ever been and ever, especially, yes, you can buy Guardians of the Galaxy now, but that's not a shade on Annihilation and Planet Hulk. No, it says a lot that of those three simultaneous events, this has the lowest rank on the countdown. So both Annihilation and Civil War are coming. Mm. And as we get to each of those three stories, we'll discuss whether or not that is the proper order for them. But yeah, it does say a lot about Marvel Comics in 2007 that they had three massive simultaneous events or stories going on, and they all eventually made this countdown. Mm. Well, as Eva, you said how you came into this, and I distracted you slightly. For me, the Hulk has always been this character that I've been cu- I've been curious about, but hasn't gone and read. And I'd seen a few episodes of the Incredible Hulk TV series. I'd seen the movie which involved Thor, which I I'd really loved when I was <laughs> younger. But I'd never really bought a, a Hulk comic or watched the Hulk cartoons or, or anything like that. And about the only thing I knew was that there was this story involving Doctor Strange and that Peter David had written lots of amazing Hulk comics. So about a year prior to Planet Hulk, Peter David returned to the Hulk title. And this was a big thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of something, it would be like if John Byrne returned to the Fantastic Four, not that, that would ever happen. Uh, because I doubt he could get through mm-hmm. signing the contract without offending everyone in the room. But it was a big thing, so I thought, well, this is my jumping on point. So I, uh, David was on the book for about a year or so. He did a, a good story called Tempest Fugit, which went really off the rails in the last few pages when Nightmare made a really... The villain Nightmare turned up and it became really weird. September the 11th thing. He wrote an amazing one-shot with art by Jai Lee that's still one of my favourite issues of comics. Fantastic stuff. He wrote one of the best House of End times that involved Hulk becoming governor of Australia, which was great fun. But of course, the moment you start asking Peter David to tie into a crossover, you're probably calling time on his run on the book. So he left. And I kept buying the book, which is when Daniel Way turned up um, for a four-issue story arc before he became the Daniel Way that we all know to avoid like the plague. And that then led into this. I basically <laughs> just kept forgetting to stop buying it. And I'm so glad I did, because I had no intention of buying a year-long story called Planet Hulk, because it sounded a bit crap. And it's one of my, uh, of my opinions, this should be higher up, because it's a, a fantastic comic. And rereading it, there was so much that I'd forgotten. For instance, just how much I love the Warbands, as I've already mentioned, and how rich and vibrant and detailed the world of Scar is. I mean, Greg Pak did such amazing world-building with that. It, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Pox sat down and was definitely outlined in the long haul. And I believe this was actually his first work for either of the big two. I believe This was so, yeah. his break. Yeah, so he went through Planet Hulk, World War Hulk, Incredible Hercules with Fred Van Lente, and kept running in a lot of the Hulk universe. I mean, there was the relaunch of Hulk by Jeff Loeb, but when they had the Hulk and Incredible Hulk running at that time with Bruce Banner in Incredible, it was Greg Pock who still wrote that. He wrote Son of Scar, which... It's also a consequence of this book, but 
the less said about that, the better. I think mm. that's the only Greg Pak story I didn't enjoy. Just looking through his biography on Wikipedia, he'd already written X-Men Phoenix Endsong, which is a very well-regarded X-Men miniseries by this point, as well as a Warlock series with Charlie Adler, which must have been one of the last things Charlie Adler did before The Walking Dead. So he, he was he was a, a known quantity, but this was probably his real launch in the world of comics. Okay, yeah, so Marvel Editorial knew how good he was, but the Phoenix Endsong, if I remember, the sales were respectable, but when you've got these tie-in miniseries that are quasi-alternate universes or not necessarily tied to continuity, the readership doesn't necessarily notice how good the creative team is. Ah, Phoenix Endsong was in continuity. It wasn't an alternate universe thing. It was the tease of Jean Grey coming back that never actually happened, but it, it tied the uh, Phoenix Force into characters like Quentin Quire and the, the Stepford Cuckoos. And, I mean, you could argue there's a line from that through to a Avengers vs. X-Men, but I'd rather not because I prefer to pretend that event doesn't exist. Okay. Clearly show my ignorance of Phoenix Song. I haven't actually read it myself. I would imagine it's not easy to track down, but we need to get back to uh, pl- the Planet Hulk storyline. Yeah, so what the podcast series has done, I will read that on Marvel Digital Limited because I'm pretty sure it's there. Anyway, so that is, you know, the basic synopsis. The significance is that, yeah, it this explained why Hulk did not participate in Civil War. It set the stage for World War Hulk and everything that came after, including the Red Hulk, the appearance of A-Bomb, the Red She-Hulk, and that complete expansion of the Hulk supporting cast. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm going to stand my ground on this one. My view on the Planet Hulk into World War Hulk is it gave a, a, a nice clear end point for the Hulk. You could stop reading after the end of World War Hulk, and it's kind of like the story's done with Hulk, mm-hmm. without actually sort of walking off into the sunset or anything like that. It actually comes to the kind of ending that's appropriate for the Hulk, which is he's turned everyone against him. He's now left. Hulk is now left alone, locked up in a military whatever. All the proliferation of Hulks that came after that didn't really have anything to do with this it's just the next version of the hulk that came after and it seems to me there is i find there's a real divide between the end of world war hulk and jeff Loeb's hulk number one and it actually takes greg pack coming along as you end into the get into i can't remember what the the big conflict was after a couple of years was it war of the hulks or something like that it's only when greg pack yeah. came back back and incredible hulk was revived as incredible hulks that you start to see those links but they're very mm-hmm. retroactive they are. The, the real tie from World War Hulk to Jeff Loeb's run is that the last time we see Bruce Banner, he's containing a red gel. So people were wondering if that red Hulk was Bruce Banner in a new form. That's really the only connection, and it's pretty darn tenuous. <sighs> you know that thing when we look for connections that aren't there? I think we found yeah. one. Yeah, but yeah, so that's that's where this is. In any event, I mean, the, for the impact that's had in the, on the industry, well, yeah, at the very least, it definitely leads into World War Hulk which is the first Hulk-centric crossover that impacts the whole Marvel Universe. It was one of the shorter events in that it was only about 50 comics instead of 100. I think Civil War crossed the 130 mark. I believe it's the largest crossover to date. And considering that Secret Wars 2 had a mandate to cross over to every single book because the editor-in-chief was writing it, that's saying something. Yeah, and that had the advantage it only had to touch each book once as a minimum rather than, right, we've got to have a whole load of three and four issue minis on top of things tying in, so... Yeah, we'll talk about why Civil War got so big when we talk about it in episode two, but it wasn't intended to be as big as it became. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so that's that's really what it what it was. I mean, there's not a lot more to fill in in terms of backstory and impact. This no, 
it was very much a, a one-line pitch that in the hands of a lesser writer would have probably been one of those things where after four issues people are deserting it in their droves and it's, it gets a bit of a stink around it. But this was very well done and the way it escalates, so it starts off very contained, almost like the Hulk version of the film Gladiator, where it's just about what's happening in the arena. There's even a bit where the Hulk confronts the Red King, who is basically Joaquin Phoenix's character, but then it grows beyond that. And I loved the way that they depowered the Hulk so that people would be challenging him to him at the start of it, but you wouldn't have to then keep repeating that challenge later on in the story because he is growing stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is definitely coming back into his own. Um, the touch they had with his blood nourishing the, the soil again so things could grow to tie him into their mythology, it was a nice touch. It helps understand why these people are looking to the stranger as their savior. You know, of course, you can debate whether the savior and the world breaker are supposed to be one and the same and which one he actually is. Mm. I also like on the reread, if you've listened to the World War Hulk episode already, you've been spoiled that they're one of the warbound was actually the cause of the explosion. And we kind of get that impression here. So, I mean, we see him in a position to set that off. We don't actually see him set it up. Yeah, I've always had in my head that Meek caused the explosion because of his dissatisfaction with the way the Hulk was heading in the latter part of the story. Basically, after Meek transforms <laughs> from the in, into the, oh, I can't think of the term, the leader of his people, for want of a better word. I'm sure people who have recently read this are going, no, 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 this is what he becomes, and I'm I'm sorry, I can't think of it. Yeah, but that is the way it is, and it's that is his motivation, which is explicitly spelled out at the end of World War Hulk, but rereading this now that I've read World War Hulk so recently, I see the little hints in the dialogue, even four and five issues in, indicating that that's the path he's on. So, Pock clearly had outlined all 14 issues from the outset, because the foreshadowing is there. Which is nice, because there are some people who, you know, sort of fly by the seat of their pants, there's not as much foreshadowing, because they don't know exactly what's coming. Whereas this foreshadowing is subtle enough that it is absolutely foreshadowing, but I missed it entirely on the first read-through. And it's foreshadowing things that, in some cases, are, you know, 14 and 15 issues later, by the time you get through the five issues of World War Hulk. Mm. There are some really nice connections within to the Marvel Universe. I think the most blatant one is, obviously, the appearance of the Silver Savage or as we obviously know in the Silver Surfer, who is somehow being captured. The the idea is that as things come through the wormhole, they are weakened and are easily captured by the Red King, which is how the Silver Surfer explores the wormhole, and that's how he's caught. So um, it's really interesting to see the Hulk meet one of his previous allies from the Defenders so soon after he's realised that his other previous allies, or the Illuminati, have betrayed him. So there's some interesting personal stuff going on, but the freeing of the Surfer is a great moment. And then he's gone, and then you've got this wonderful thing that comics writers do, where they cherry-pick underused bits of continuity to bring in. So Korg, as I've mentioned previously, is one of the stone aliens from the Thor's first appearance, a very underused Marvel race. And in fact, using Korg in this situation is actually legitimizes an early 60s alien race from Marvel, because the majority of them just don't matter. Does anyone remember the Ovoids? No. You have a great use of the brood, uh, really moving them beyond just a, a race of alien from the alien franchise rip-offs. So you <laughs> kind of lose the body horror. You get the sense of No Name's loneliness, the loss that's happened with the loss of the brood homeworld. I forget where that happened. And this interesting relationship between No Name and Meek, especially when Meek is in the younger, more naive incarnation before the, he physically evolves and has a, 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 <laughs> a change of heart about various things. 
Yeah, Meek, uh, for those listening, he is he seems to be a large insect, at least that style of alien. And at some point he goes through metamorphosis, but instead of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, he's more like a, a stick bug becoming a beetle mm. in, in a physical sense. So large for an insect, but still tiny compared to the rest of the warbound. Yeah. And then you do have this very strong relationship between Hulk and Kyra, I think is how it's pronounced. That's how I pronounce it. <laughs> so Kyra is one of the four races on the planet. She is a the old strong, which is this sort of very powerful but religious race. And she spends a lot of the story working for the Red King until the actions that he takes in terms of sacrificing pretty much anyone he wants to to get to the Red Hulk forces a change of heart and she sees an ability within the Hulk and actually falls in love with him. And this feels like a more appropriate romance and a more believable romance for the Hulk than what little I've read of the Jurella stuff, although I'll admit I, I have yet to reach the main Jurella run. Or indeed, most of any time I've ever seen Bruce and Betty together because they just never seem like they're worth having together except that the comic, they were there at the beginning so the comics keep pushing that. And her, her passing is really, it's a kick, but it's what sets the Hulk off on his course for World War Hulk. And um, you, you end on the series of this great visual of the spaceship is heading towards Earth, but Hulk's just standing on top of it with his sword and everything in hand, his gladiator armor ready to fight the Earth, even though it's like a three-week journey. It's like, how long can you hold that pose, Hulk? Not as long as you might think. Yeah, which is probably why his pose changes between there and where World War Hulk starts. But yeah, not by much, you know things are going on, and this is the Hulk's turn for a major event. Because as we've said, events were doing really well for Marvel. Yeah. Now one, uh, one of the things I wanted to sort of um, throw in is, as well as the main storyline, there was also a, a handbook that was issued along with this. It was called the Planet Hulk Gladiator Guidebook, and this was one of a number of official handbooks that came out at the time, which were themed around various things rather than just being, uh, here's an A to Z. And this, I think, is one of the best they've ever put out. Um, I'm sure you could find it very cheaply in back issue bins, and it's well worth picking up because there is so much about the history of Sakaar which is only hinted at or briefly touched on within there, but you, you understand this planet so well and understand everything that's happened there and all the work that Greg Pak put together to make this place believable. This this is one of the most believable planets I've ever read in comics, you know, Krypton doesn't come close to it, frankly. It's it's a phenomenal yeah. read, <laughs> and I spent far too long just reading things about the history of the city when I should have been probably rereading this or doing notes for the Fantasticast. Oh yeah, probably. I can I can imagine that you don't get something with this level of detail without knowing that the author spelled out a lot more details in their own backstory to have available, and was very judicious and and effective in selecting which of those details are going to make it into the script. Absolutely. And, and what that means is then that uh, a lot of awkward exposition doesn't have to be within there. You can reference things in the real-world context in the same way that we might go, oh yeah, Watergate, without them following it up with very awkward. That was that thing where our president, Richard Nixon, one of the most trusted people in the world, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It, which means that the thing becomes a lot more natural, which means that you can keep the story moving at a good pace. With the, there are very few downtime moments, but when you do get that, you often get some great moments where the Warbound are bondering, where you discover the histories of the members of the Warbound. Really nicely done. And of course, there are a couple of very quiet moments when Bruce Banner makes an appearance, because if you're looking for a, a story that's about the relationship between Banner and the Hulk, forget it. 
he's on page for maybe eight or nine pages out of the entire thing. Yeah, I think he's, as you said, he's got a couple of appearances. One of them lasts maybe two or three panels, Mm -hmm. which is just long enough for Coyote to get a hint and say, okay, show me the rest. And then Hulk lets Bruce Banner out and Banner basically says, yeah, this is the rest to me. And uh, one of the nice things about this, it's the first time I remember seeing what appears to be Bruce consciously allowing the Hulk to take lead. Yeah. He's like, yeah, it's your your turn. You're happy. This is working. So I will stay buried and you keep running the show. Yes. And that element of it seems a little incongruous in terms of the wider Hulk narrative beyond the story, but it absolutely works within this. <laughs> it's that moment of complete and utter honesty with Kyra, where you, mm-hmm. ad- you, you admit a flaw within yourself that you... Are, you don't admit to other people. You you let your guard down. You let your shields down. And in this case, the Hulk literally lets himself down, as, as it were. So I'm using slightly awkward language here. He drops every single thing that stops who he is from being hidden. And that moment of acceptance, I think, is really important for everyone in that, including actually Bruce thinking about it. Mm-hmm. This would have worked, and this, this this whole thing would have actually worked better than. The original plan to send the Hulk to a, a world where he can be the only one left. Oh, yeah. The other extra issue in this, there was a giant-sized Hulk which was printed. Now, I really like this giant-sized Hulk because half of the book was taken up with a reprint of Peter David's The Hulk, The End one-shot, which I had never read but had heard amazing things about. But you also had a, a great story involving Bruce and the Hulk on Sakaar, which I think gives more context to why Bruce stays hidden away. And then there's a, a thing involving the champions, which uh, leads into the Amadeus Cho stuff, which then leads into the World War Hulk stuff. Yeah, and the Incredible Hercules run that follows it as well. Yeah, but it also is the champions, which is uh, better left forgotten, I think. Yeah, I don't remember reading that. As I, said, I wasn't a huge Hulk fan. It was just, oh, here's a cheap per issue DVD-ROM, and well, then I can't just yeah. only be missing one issue in the run. I mean, each month it would have been, well, just one more issue to finish the run. Yeah, well, this wouldn't have been eligible for inclusion on those DVDs because it wasn't an annual and it wasn't the core run. But it, it's a nice little extra. And uh, But for me, the big part was I get to own Hulk the End, which is a, a fantastic story. And there's more than a few thematic mm-hmm. links from that to Planet Hulk, which made it one of those reprints they did in the mid-2000s, which is completely earned rather than just filling up space. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Hulk the End is one of the best Hulk stories I've ever read. Do we want to quickly talk about the animated movie? Because this is one of the few storylines to have been directly animated by Marvel. When you think of the DC animated movies, quite a few storylines have been adapted either directly or with changes. I'm thinking of something like Batman Under the Red Hood, which adapted some of Judd Winnick's Batman stories, but took it in its <laughs> own direction as well. Um, so this is one where they, they adapted relatively faithfully the storyline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They didn't have the rights to the Silver Surfer, so they made some edits in that point. And but we as got with Beta a lot Ray of it, Bill, yeah, which was just awesome. This is true, and beyond that, the only other edits that they made were essentially because the higher ups said, "No, your your movie will be no longer than X number of minutes, and you could not adapt this entire storyline in that number." No, so some things were streamlined for the sake of a runtime. Yeah, so for instance, we, we've talked a lot about Meek. He never transforms within that. He uh, yeah. he stays in his original form. I, I really like original Meek. He's a very interesting character. Just the sort of the impotence of his physical form against his desire for revenge, for avenging his people. Um, it, it's great. Yeah, it's a, a more general point. There's a reason why DC's animated movies 
do incredibly well in terms of critical reception, in terms of fan reception, and in terms of sales. And the reason why Marvel's, you kind of go, oh yeah, that's there, and nothing more, because they just don't, they just don't quite understand what makes these things work, and they all just seem fairly inconsequential. Yeah, Lionsgate doesn't seem to be putting the same passion into cherry picking the best stories that work. Yeah, when Marvel was was working with Lionsgate and they were picking stories. This is one of the rare times when they said, no, we're just going to take that story mm. and run with it. We're not going to come up with our own thing. And of course, I think when, when people as well look at the fact there hasn't been a Hulk movie since 2008, and apparently there is some weird rights thing which prevents them from, at this stage, from doing that. This is the one project people come to and they say, well, what would a Hulk movie be based on? I think it's very easy to see how they could do Planet Hulk. I mean, just even you could, in your head, go, well, in the middle of Civil War, Tony realizes the Hulk is something he can't deal with, so he tricks him and rockets him into space. Boom, he's gone, and then the next movie picks up with him landing on the planet, and it's just Planet Hulk. Uh, that would be an amazing way of doing it. Mark Ruffalo has said he wants to do it. I think fandom would love to see it, and I think it would make a very strong addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because tonally, it would be something completely different. Visually, it would be as different from most MCU films as Guardians was. And it's a it's a completely different story to what's currently being told in cinema, which is basically let's remake Iron Man over and over. I yeah, and in terms of the right issue that Stephen was alluding to, my understanding is that when Disney took over and purchased Marvel Comics and Marvel Studios, there were existing deals for different studios to distribute other films, and they left those intact. So Paramount still was the distributor on Iron Man two, for example, where. So essentially, Marvel Studios made the movie. The distributor is the company that gets the copies printed and into theaters. But the deal they have with Universal was phrased differently than Paramount. So even though Marvel Studios owns the rights to create a Hulk movie, Universal would still have the rights to distribute. Mm. And Disney has their own distribution arm. And Disney is not big on sharing. So they, they can make an Incredible Hulk solo film tomorrow. But if it's a solo Hulk film and not Hulk as a member of an ensemble cast, mm. then they either have to have Universal distribute it or pay off Universal to distribute it themselves, which is still costing them a comparable amount of money. Okay. So they have chosen not to do that. So it is perfectly legal for them to do it. It just means they're sharing the money with someone else and Disney's not big on sharing. Fair enough. Uh, maybe a couple of other things we might want to mention. This was a Marvel crossover or Marvel events, sorry, from the mid-2000s. So, of course, it received its own what-if issue, because Marvel, at some point, yeah. forgot what the whole point of what-if was. And there's four different, uh, sorry, three different stories in that. One is which, when Hulk dies instead of Kyra, and Kyra then leads the invasion of Earth, and basically, she murders everyone and enslaves the planet, uh, because she can't be stopped in, uh, by the Sentry, and lots and lots of white pages to save John Romita from joining, uh, from drawing them. There's another one where the Hulk lands where he's supposed to, and that's quite an awesome story because he basically keeps on living, but the planet adapts to him, and when life evolves, it evolves in a way that's appropriate for him, and he is still able to live in peace. And then the final one is, what if Bruce Banner lands on Sakaar instead of the Hulk, and the Hulk ste and Bruce Banner steps out of the spaceship and is kind of killed almost immediately? Yeah, So that would be the way it plays out. And, and finally, there is a, a Planet Hulk series happening at the moment, which is part of Secret Wars, I didn't know much about this until I was chatting to someone at a convention I was at this weekend just prior to the recording, and I was told it involved Captain America and Devil Dinosaur and lots and lots of Hulks. That sounds kind of mad and awesome, but I've not read it. Yeah, nor have I. Frankly, 
I'm really enjoying doing this podcast, but it takes up enough of my reading and recording in other spare time mm. that Daredevil is the only title out there that I'm up to date on. Yeah, that's kind of all these other things that came out of it. But obviously, the big thing that came out of it was Wars War Hulk, which is to me one of the most enjoyable of the crossovers from this period in Marvel because you don't have horribly mischaracterized people like you do in Civil War. You don't have uh, basically six issues of alternate universe run around just to get the point of Wanda going no more mutants than you do in House of M. You don't have tediousness like you do in Secret Invasion. This is just, it's an action thing. It's the Hulk pissed off with everyone. It's great fun. It's, I, I'm not sure about how it ends, but it's still very enjoyable. But I think it's absolutely right that Planet Hulk sits higher than World War Hulk because Planet Hulk, you could give that trade to absolutely <laughs> anybody they need no context. They can read it. They can go, this is fantastic. And they'll go, what's next? Whereas World War Hulk, you kind of <laughs> need the context of what's come before. And you reach the end and they go, well, that's the end. So yeah. I think it's, it's absolutely right that this is higher on the list. Oh, yeah. And you'd be hard pressed to read this. Right? If you handed someone this hardcover, I wouldn't be surprised if you know you hear from them again shortly going, OK, what comes next? How, how, where do I keep reading? Yeah. Because it is that kind of ending where you know what comes next is also going to be great. Mm -hmm. So from there, we should move into the portion of the podcast that I have blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, in which we discuss the messages, morals, and meanings, and see if there's anything like that that is trying to be conveyed here. Well, on the past two episodes of the show I've been on, um, I've been very quick to say, no, there aren't any deeper meanings. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and tease some out of this. So I, I think the deeper meanings that if you're going to be sending your friend into space to a desolate planet to live out his life in solitude, a random wormhole can screw up your plans. It can be that bleed all over the ground just in case plants turn up and you turn into a mythical saviour of the entire planet. Don't trust giant bugs. The silver savage is actually your friend. Um, no, no, not many deeper meanings in this. Hulk smash. Hulk smash a lot. Yeah, and it's, if anything, it's respect for others and aim for coexistence because that's, you know, if the people on Earth left the Hulk alone, he wouldn't have caused most of the destruction that Illuminati exiled him for. Mm. If the Emperor here had left the Hulk in the Warbound alone when they escaped, they wouldn't have had a planet-crushing war, right? So that's there. You can read some of this. Some of this about a message of tolerance, mm -hmm. but again, most of it is let's have fun with Hulk as a gladiator in space. Yes, and they absolutely achieve that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I think we have kind of spelled it out. More than once already, but yeah, I, I think it's safe to say this landed where it did in the rankings because it is just a very rich and well-written story with a great cast, mm -hmm. many of which were created for this. So this isn't like, you know, Peter David creating some great members of Hulk's cast, but then just fleshing others out. Yeah. Peter David took the leader and made him something great rather than, you know, I found before that mediocre. Uh, same with Betty Ross, quite frankly. With that DVD-ROM, at one point I decided to read all those DVD-ROMs because they were getting in the backlog, and I would start with the ones that interested me the least so that I'd be the most compelled to go into the ones I enjoyed, which is why I started with the Hulk. Mm -hmm. And until I hit Peter David's run, I mean, you talk about the original Jarella run, the original story is a good story, but it's a single issue. Yeah. And there's maybe three or four single issues I'd pull out to recommend to people in the 300-some issues prior to these stories. So we get... The Crossroads around issue 300, Peter David takes her over and around issue 320, and Greg Pak is the next writer on the Hulk after Peter David that really got me excited. Yeah, 
I, I, I think absolutely on that. And I, I've not been a consistent Hulk buyer since the end of World War Hulk. The closest I got to was picking up a few issues of the Incredible Hulk's run, but the problem was that f- tied into Fall of the Hulks. That was the, the storyline, not War okay. of the Hulks, Fall of the Hulks. And I just found the, the Hulk proliferation to be unnecessary and not a particularly good idea. So for me, this is the highlight of the time I've been buying comics in terms of Hulk comics, and no one's come close, not even Mark Wade, who did some good stuff, but also didn't do some good stuff. The Jerry Duggan stuff recently, the last year or so, that has been, been kind of uh, kind of interesting and, and fun to read, mostly because he's spent a year basically undoing everything Jeff Loeb did, um, depowering every other Hulk except for, for She-Hulk, and that's, that's, that's pleased me. That really has. Okay. I, I admit I haven't read Jerry Duggan's. I jumped on with Mark Wade and jumped off when he left. No, uh, Jerry Duggan is... I find him a very underrated writer. I was really saddened that his Arkham Manor book at DC went nowhere at all because that was really well written, fantastically drawn, but it just it was a bat book too far, I guess. Um, but he he's written some really good stuff. He's actually made Nova, the new Nova series, a must-read, whereas on the Jeff Loeb it was so clear. It was like, I'm doing five issues and I'm gone. Okay, I won't do five issues then. He, he's an underrated writer and he should be getting more people talking about him than there are. That's what I keep hearing. I... So did you have any closing thoughts? Only that, once again, a bit like with the next wave issue I was on a few months back, um, if you haven't read this, this should be top of your list of things to track down and read, because it's that good. I can say this is a good comic without sort of excusing something or going, but, like in the same way, like in the way that I can say, well, Ant-Man's a really good film, but there's a massive problem with how they treat the woman in that and not giving her anything to do, even though she's much more qualified than the male hero to do all the hero stuff that needs doing. This is just really, really good. And please do go out, grab a copy of it. Yeah, get, get a physical copy and sit in a chair and turn the pages because that's, that's great rather than just jab at the side of an iPad to um, flick to the next page. You know, read it and enjoy it because it's a fantastic read and one of the best Hulk stories ever published. Yeah, and it does have enough two-page spreads that I think the two-page spreads are the the biggest issue with reading on tablets because instead of Mm. getting this larger picture that has a greater impact, it shrinks Yeah, to fit it all on the screen. And the the two-page spreads, I feel, are warranted as well because when I think of bad two-page spreads, I always think of there's an issue in Warren Ellis' Ultimate Galactus trilogy where you see them preparing a spaceship for launch. There's just a two-page spread of the mobile vehicle assembly thing from NASA moving very slowly across a desert. And you're just like, what is this? These ones really give you the sense of scale that you need to believe in the planet of Sakaar. Oh, definitely. Oh, I should yeah. I should say, because someone will be going, hold on, we haven't talked about uh, Scar, Son of Hulk, and it should be pointed out that Kara was pregnant and uh, children did survive this. There are two sons of Hulk running around the series, I believe, were well written. They didn't sell anything. They were folded into the whole Fall of the Hulks thing. There was some more aftermath of this, but I just got, I've got almost no experience on that. Uh, bearing in mind how well they sold, I doubt many people do. Amen. Uh, Stephen, thank you for coming on and discussing the story with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we will hear Stephen again when oh. he rejoins us to discuss my all-time favorite Marvel event ever. But that's going to be a long way away. <laughs> Yep, it it's high on the list as it should be. Meanwhile, next week, we've got a pretty light reading assignment. It's Fantastic Four, issue 285, which you could find reprinted in Fantastic Four Visionaries, volume 7, The Secret Wars 2 Omnibus, which is not the one I'd recommend investing in if you're looking just for this issue. 
both of the Fantastic Four DVD-ROMs released by Gitcorp, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. So don't forget to check out the Fantastic Cast. Indeed. Um, you can find that at ffcast.libsyn.com. Um, recent episodes on our feed include my thoughts on the Fantastic Four movie, our commentary on the 94 Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie, and two special episodes called Stephen Andy Fansplain the FF, which use the style of Rachel Mars Explain the X-Men to cover 120 issues of the Fantastic Four in 117 minutes. So about one minute per issue. It kind of averages out as that. We we were surprised at how quickly we got through our notes. <laughs> well, it, it, it was a deliberate thing. You know, we, we've done 140-odd episodes. It's not easy for someone to come in and go, right, I'll catch up with the Fantasticast. That's nearly a week's worth of listening. So we wanted to allow everyone to catch up and join us again as people start discovering us with the movie. So, yeah, it, it's a great jumping-on point. And that doesn't stop you from then going, oh, I really like the sound of this issue. I want to know more. I'll listen to that episode. Okay. Anyway, so uh, those of you at home, feel free to rate this and any other show you listen to regularly on iTunes or whatever feed you have that provides ratings. It does help the shows get noticed. And share it with your friends if you think they may be interested. Feel free to join our Facebook group where we've got an open forum to discuss the these stories since the recording schedule isn't really conducive to having live listener feedback. And thank you for listening.